This is Jim Pruitt, and you listen to another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. So I farm so hard, employees want to find me, and then want to hire me. What's 100K to a guy like me? Could you please remind me? Farm so hard, this ain't easy. Working late nights, you best believe me. My grades can only go ace. Never want to see another B unless I'm Jay-Z. Farm so hard, What's let's up, get back. the host, Jim Pruitt, a.k.a. Farm D and ED, and I'm bringing you another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. And you know how we do it. We always have a special guest, a special topic, and we're always taking it from brain to vein. And today we're joined by a familiar foe, a familiar friend of the podcast. We have Adiz Correct of the ERRX podcast. And if you haven't subscribed to that, you got to go ahead and check that out because it is one of the dopest podcasts out there. Uh, for, for some of those who haven't met you before, just give a, a quick introduction to yourself so everyone can kind of get caught up to speed. Absolutely, man. Jimmy, thanks so much for having me on the show again. On uh, For those of you that subscribe to my podcast, you've heard Jimmy on my show. So we like to do this uh, every once in a while as often as we can. But yeah, my name is Adis Carrick. I am an ED pharmacist out of Minnesota. And I've been practicing in the ED setting specifically for about three, four years now. For a couple of years before that, I rotated between medicine, the ICUs, and the ED. I did my PGY-1 and PGY-2 at the site that I practice at. And by the way, my, my second year residency was in critical care, not emergency medicine, but I made that transition as most of us do. And uh, like Jimmy was saying, I run a podcast myself called the ERRX Podcast that comes along with a blog, uh, ERRXPodcast.com. And I'm just really excited and really happy to be here with Farm So Hard and Jimmy. So thanks for having me on. Perfect. Perfect. And guys, again, I'm going to throw a quick couple of announcements because we have some key things going on and I don't want you guys to, to miss out on all that. Again, we have the, we have the Empower RX conference that's going to be held in collaboration with SAEM on March 16th. So go ahead and check that out. You can go to empowerrx.conference.com or you can go directly to the SAEM site and register for the in-person Emergency Medicine Pharmacotherapy Resuscitation Conference. It's going to be amazing. I'm going to do crazy stuff. It's going to be phenomenal speakers. So go ahead and check that out. And the last thing I'm going to leave you guys with is that if you're studying for board certification, if you do any of those things, definitely hit us up on our, 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 our academy called PACU Prep. And that's something that can help us out. But again, all that's going to be the show note. And I don't, I don't want to spend too much time taking care of that. So without further ado, today's topic is going to be straight out of control. Managing status epilepticus like a boss with, of course, the boss himself. That is correct. <laughs> so we're going to go ahead and transition right into that to get you guys set for this episode. All right, these again, lots of stuff that we can actually start with, but I really want to go ahead and jump into this and speak about something that if you're a newer practitioner, this maybe not something you've dealt with, but I think Adis and myself, we was around when we start changing some of these definitions. So this, can you really go ahead and go into some of the, give us a definition of status epilepticus and why is that really important? Absolutely, Jimmy. You know, status is one of my favorite topics, and I talk about it a lot on my podcast and my blog as well. And one of the reasons why is because I feel like it's so pharmacy heavy, um, because from the minute the patient walks into the door, you're thinking of dosing, drawing up meds, to picking appropriate RSI meds if they need to be intubated. Once they get up on the floor, you're talking about high doses of continuous infusions, 
drug monitoring, drug interaction checking, et cetera. So I'm really excited to be here to talk about this uh, specific disease state. But in a nutshell, the definition, the textbook definition of this condition is five or more minutes of continuous clinical and or electrographic seizures or recurrent seizures where the patient seizes but then doesn't return to their baseline between episodes. The As Jimmy was saying, you know, there was some changing of that definition in the previous years. It used to be you had to wait 30 minutes before you could clinically diagnose status. And we just learned that that was way too much time to be sitting there, standing at bedside, watching someone seize before you hit them with these really, really high doses of anti-epileptic drugs. So five minutes is the current definition. And it also comes in two flavors. We have generalized convulsive status, where the patient has obvious tonic-clonic movements and shaking. And then we have the non-convulsive status where patients don't exhibit those symptoms. They don't shake, they don't convulse. And unfortunately, the only way to diagnose them is after an EEG is performed. And so for that reason, the non-convulsive status has a much higher morbidity and mortality rate since it's harder to diagnose and can be missed. Yeah, that's one of the big things that really is intriguing because I think sometimes we think about status and I think the picture that everyone has is the person like shaking all around, going crazy and things of that nature. But really, a large percentage of these patients, by definition, are going to be that non-convulsive status of the lab because that you mentioned. So I think that's one thing we really have to get into. And now that we've had an understanding of the definitions and that really kind of helped define us because I commonly ask my residents, hey, is this patient having a seizure or is this patient and in status of the lap because and it's mm-hmm. like, well, what is the definition of that? And I think that's the foundation of where we should really be when it comes to all of this, because if you don't have that, it's very hard to figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. The next part that I want to transition into is something that I always thought was like super cool. And it's one of those foundational things that I think if you're listening, you're a student, if you're listening and you're kind of early in your career, again, this is something that really helps you understand how this treatment works more so than most other disease states, and it's the pathophysiology. So, at least, again, can you walk us through that in a very kind of simplified way? Because, again, I think if people understand the pathophysiology, then they can really get to understand why we're treating the way that we are and why some of these other agents that are not necessarily targeting the more predominant receptor can really have an impact for us. Yeah, absolutely. Great great thing to know is how do you define a disease state and then the pathophys that'll really help you guys as pharmacists and as providers. Um, and let's kind of go back to who who gets status to begin with, you know, which is, I guess, partly uh, part of the pathophys. More than half of the time, these patients already have a history of seizures. And then status develops if a patient is not compliant with their meds, if they, for example, had a planned reduction in their dose or simply their seizure disorder is getting worse and they just are having breakthrough seizures despite therapeutic levels. Patients can also develop status from a neurologic insult like a TBI, some type of brain bleed, meningitis, even like acute ischemic stroke can cause status. Uh, Patients can also develop status from having some type of electrolyte disturbance, hyponatremia and hypoglycemia come to mind which is why it's very important to get finger stick glucoses on all these patients. Uh, Drugs of abuse or therapeutic drugs can cause status. And then alcohol withdrawal in its very severe forms can also cause it. So kind of knowing 
which bundle your patient fits into most of the time. It's because they're not taking their anti-epileptic agent. But the pathophys itself is basically an imbalance between excitatory and inhibitory neurotransmission. And in status, this imbalance is basically on steroids, you know, compared to other seizure disorders. And this makes it much harder to manage than a typical seizure because we have what's called receptor trafficking. And I'll talk a little bit about what that is, but it's a bad thing because this means that the longer your patient has a seizure, the longer they're in status, the harder it is to treat it. So what happens is at baseline normal levels for humans, uh, GABA or inhibitory neurotransmission predominates over the excitatory NMDA receptors. But what we found in status is that with prolonged seizures, for whatever reason, GABA receptors become internalized and NMDA receptors actually get externalized. And so now we have an imbalance with more excitatory neurotransmission while at the same time making your AEDs that work on GABA, like the benzos, less effective since there's less receptors for the drug to work on. And so this is a thing that's unique to status, as far as I know, is this receptor trafficking and GABA internalization. And it all circles back to the urgency of treatment and how quickly we need to treat these patients. Um, and also how important it is to dose the meds you're giving correctly. And this is something I'm specifically going to focus on uh, in this conversation with you today, Jimmy, is avoiding underdosing of the medications you're giving because of this receptor trafficking. So I talk about this point very frequently with my residents, my students, and even my colleagues and the providers. So we have to keep in mind what's going on in these patients' bodies, what's going on at the synapse, and then we have to treat these patients urgently and aggressively. If you look at mortality rates for something like a convulsive status, it's about 25%, but it only keeps going up to, for example, 50 to 60% for non-convulsive status and another 60% mortality rate if your patient is refractory. And we have hard data showing that inappropriate, delayed, and underdosed treatment of these patients will conclusively and... Um, very obviously worsen their mortality rates. Yeah, and that's something that's that's pretty intriguing because I think as pharmacists, again, like you mentioned, this is the thing that the PGY one can take care of. This is the thing that the that the experienced clinician can take care of. This is the one thing that we can really focus on. And the cool part is knowing that there there is solid data with all of this. So I think mm -hmm. that really kind of leads us into a lot of kind of what we talked about, and you mentioned this before about how they necessarily differ in, in a sense, but I really want to just hit very quickly uh, about some of the, the difference between a typical seizure uh, and then status epilepsy, because I think sometimes we miss that because I commonly have patients that present with a seizure in, is in the post-ictal phase, mm -hmm. and then I have a patient that's in status. I just want to mm -hmm. see, like, can you just like very briefly <laughs> touch on that before we move into talking about a lot of the drugs? Because there's a lot of great stuff about drugs in this episode. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Jimmy. I mean, it's it's different from a typical seizure because, again, it's longer than a typical seizure, and we don't have that return to baseline, along with the whole host of other things that are happening internally and at the receptor, like receptor trafficking. But you're right. It's really, really hard 
to have a provider say, I think this patient is in status. So I've had patients come into the emergency department with a seizure that may or may not have been treated by EMS already. And I go to the room and I say, okay, is this patient in status? And what you'll get a lot of the time is a provider saying, oh, I don't know. I'm not sure. They're not actively seizing now, but I really don't know what their baseline is. You know, and then a few minutes later, they have another seizure and then they kind of wake up again and they're talking to you. And it's just one of those weird diagnoses for providers to make. And like you said, it's not only difficult for residents and for the pharmacist, but in my experience, and you can speak on this too, Jimmy, but you know, you, you start to kind of poke and prod that provider, you know, like trying to get them to say like, this is status, but sometimes uh, they don't necessarily want to pull that trigger and say that hands down, this is for sure them not returning to baseline. So it's quite a confusing and sometimes difficult diagnosis to make at bedside. Absolutely. And I think that's the big thing I want to caveat because I think sometimes mm-hmm. on paper, these things look pretty, you know, straightforward, but again, we really have to define. And I, I like to tell people, you got to draw the foot in, in the sand. You got to say yeah. what this is because it right. really changes treatment for us quite a bit. Like if I'm sitting there in a status, again, I'm, you know, we will move some of the different agents, but every single dose that we give is slightly different. The agents that I would give is slightly different. And there's different guidelines that, that are going to be talked about. So again, it really depends on what we have going on. Is this a seizure and the patient's in a post-dictal phase and they're groggy, but they can say, hey, leave me alone. I'm tired. I had a seizure versus the patient's just out of it, not responding. And just in that weird, like very agitated state that they can they can be in. So I think you really have to draw your foot. And for me, I like to say, hey, what do you want to treat this as? We're going to go with that. So that's really something I'm big on, making sure we actually describe exactly what this is and really focus in on that. So that's a big thing for me, just understanding the definition and then applying that definition and really moving forward. So Mm -hmm. let's go ahead. And we got a decent amount of the patho and some of that background stuff. Let's go ahead and transition into some of the drugs. All right, Aziz, so we went through and talked about all the path, though. Now the patient rolls in, they've received no drugs so far, and this patient is in status epilepticus. What is the first-line treatment for this particular condition? Yeah, this is where it gets fun, Jimmy. So uh, benzos, 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 uh, and very high doses of them, right? That's key. So when we read the guidelines, you know, the most recent ones published in 2016, as well as some older ones from 2012, they will always call for lorazepam if you have an IV and at a very specific dose of 0.1 mg per kilo with a max of four milligrams that can be repeated in five to 10 minutes. So what I really want the listeners to focus on is this. If you do the math, any patient weighing more than 40 kilos should get four milligrams. If you read, you know, the MCRIT blog, he actually recommends just giving eight milligrams IV upfront to all adult patients. So that's how important this dose is. And as another important caveat when you're giving all of these benzo doses is guidelines recommend very clearly that these doses should be given as a single bolus instead of being broken up into multiple smaller doses. So I don't want to see any of this. I'll give a milligram. I'll then give another one. 
okay, then let's give two, and then let's repeat another two. If you made that diagnosis, which I understand is challenging at the bedside sometimes, you just have to go ahead and give that max dose to most of your adult patients. So I just want people to kind of keep that in mind. So moving on from IV lorazepam, if you don't have an IV line, so this mostly goes out to our EMS colleagues and listeners, we use IM midazolam, again, at a very specific dose of 0.2 milligrams per kilo with a max dose of 10 milligrams. So again, going back to simple math, every adult patient, right, weighing more than 50 kilos should get the full 10 milligram dose. So it's just something very, very important to remember, very high doses. We do have a third option, which is IV diazepam at a dose right between the other two, uh, 0.15 mg per kilo. Again, max dose of 10 milligrams that can be repeated once. So obviously there's a bunch of different ways to give benzos. The first thing that pops into my mind is like a rectal diazepam or a diastat. You know, we can give it intranasally. Uh, but these routes aren't very highly recommended. And if your patient is actually in status and we're talking about an ER or an EMS or an ICU podcast type setting, something that I won't discuss since it's just not something we're going to see for for adequate management of these patients. Absolutely. And I think that's the key thing. It's like a few questions that usually come up. And what I've started to notice now, when I have a patient coming in with status and I get that I'm right beside the, the charge nurse or whoever's taking that report, based off of that report, I'm grabbing a few medications potentially. And it helps me from just a clinical standpoint. If I know a patient has IV access, I may go one route. If a patient has no IV access, I may go another and I may start grabbing different equipment as well. So if I mm -hmm. want to give a medication IM, I want to make sure I know what needle size that's going to be appropriate. I want to make sure I have that. If I'm given an intranasal, I want to make sure, do I know what a, or atomizer is? Do I know where my equipment is? Because again, all of that is going to help me get the medication to brain the vein a lot faster. So that's mm -hmm. one of the things that I really focus on each step as part of that process to make it happen. Because again, if you don't, again, you may get there. It's like, oh, the patient lost IV access and you're not prepared for that. You didn't think about it. All right. That, now you're in a bad spot or right. if something else happens. You really just want to put yourself in the best spot possible when it comes to grabbing these first line agents, because it's super important. Like you said, mm -hmm. big doses of mm -hmm. these agents given to make sure we're doing the best we possibly can. So that's some key things that I mentioned just from an equipment standpoint and a, a drug administration component. I'm always thinking, do I have all these components with me? I carry, again, when I have something crazy coming in, I have like my little form so hard bag that I wear with me. <laughs> so again, <laughs> I have a few of those little tools and the little gadgets I in there. One so. of those. You got to send me one of those. Oh, uh, yeah. I got I to gotta, I gotta get you hooked up. <laughs> so now that we got that, really something that comes up quite often, and you, you touched on it a little bit. But how do you how do you choose between them? Because, again, what I tr traditionally see is that the first thing that my providers ask for is going to be for for Ativan. And that's right. A lot of a lot of the time. But there may be some situations where if you're not aware of the data, again, you may feel that you're given a subpar medication based off of uh, what you have going on. But can you talk about how you differentiate between? When do we use lorazepam versus diazepam or midazolam for treating patients with status? And then how quickly do they work? Because I think that's something that's a misconception uh, when it comes to administering these benzos. 
Yeah, uh, that's definitely a great point, Jimmy. So in my experience, uh, typically midday Zalam is given, again, IM by the EMS crew. Um, we will sometimes at my in my setting give uh, IV midazolam at very similar doses. So although not technically in the guidelines, you can definitely give IV midazolam. When I'm thinking about um, lorazepam versus diazepam, it all kind of goes back to pharmacokinetics for me. And I think it's a good good time to kind of think about the pharmacokinetics in this setting. So lorazepam or Ativan is less lipid soluble than the other benzos. And therefore, it has a longer duration of action. So some sources say that it can last 4 to 12 hours in its anti-epileptic effects because it doesn't redistribute into that adipose tissue after you give a dose. But on the flip side, keep in mind that these more lipid-soluble drugs like diazepam technically do work faster, especially if you're giving it IV. And that's because being lipid-soluble, they can cross that blood-brain barrier easier um, and so you can have anti-epileptic effects within a couple seconds. Um, but again, on the flip side, once they get to the brain, these lipid-soluble drugs will leave the CNS. And there are some sources that say that half of the diazepam leaves the CNS within three minutes. And so diazepam and midazolam technically only last up to about 20 minutes-ish if you read um, some of the pharmacokinetic studies. So although it is true that lorazepam needs a few more minutes to kind of get to that peak anti-seizure effect, um, we do have clinical trials that show that lorazepam is pretty much equal to, and if not, sometimes even better than IV diazepam in terms of outcomes with the same amount of side effects like respiratory depression and hypotension. And so I don't know how you feel about this, Jimmy. Diazepam is just one of those agents that I don't use a lot outside of the setting of alcohol withdrawal at my yeah. site. We're usually giving Ativan or Midase. And I agree that lorazepam takes a little bit of time to work. Um, I think that longer duration of action also is is kind of beneficial as well. Yeah, that's my that's my key thing as well. Again, if I have IV access, I'm going with Ativan all day. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I always tell my 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 residents, it's like, all right, it's time to take a ride. They're like, well, take a ride and what? <laughs> like the van, baby. Like, what? <laughs> you talking about the Ativan? <laughs> so I try to get them get them set for that. If I have IV access, it's, it's all day for me. But mm -hmm. I don't. I'm I'm going to very quickly to my IM Medazolam. Mm -hmm. Again, big doses, five ten. Uh, depending on what I have going on, if there's like, some injuries and so, something else weird happening, if I want to just a little razzle dazzle, I'll do some intranasal uh, medazolam mm -hmm. as well. Because again, we know we now, and I'm going to connect all this to the show notes, guys. We know that again, it was a study that looked at given, you know, IV lorazepam again with the real doses, you know, up to four compared mm -hmm. to IM medazolam. And again, it said that seizure termination in the IM group was 73%. Uh, compared mm -hmm. for Midas versus 63% in the IV lorazepam group. Again, in the time to first dose was a minute in that IM midazolam group compared to 4.8 minutes in the IV group. Correct. It's really just how quickly can you get IV access? How right. quickly can we get things going? And it's really situation dependent. And I no longer like have a, have a beef with doing one thing versus the other. It's really what is my patient showing me and mm -hmm. what do they need at this time? And I'm ready for all of it. That's really kind of my, my, my big thing is figuring out what IV access. Yes, no. 
what's the situation? And then I can transition my thoughts and everything to that. So that's really how I go about doing a lot of these things. So we, we know big doses, you know, we know the pharmacokinetic differences between the, between all three of these agents. And really for me, mm-hmm. that is a great drug. It's just not something I've, I'll be honest, I've never asked for it in yeah. a status case. Never, never. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, I've done with a lot of status over the years. And <laughs> it's not something that we can go with. But again, based off of this, we get to a, a very critical point in the care of these patients. Because again, as you increase the time, of course, you have a, a significant increase in morbidity and mortality. Then we get to the point where what happens if that doesn't work, if that doesn't break it? Uh, now we have to transition to some of their secondary options that, that we have. And really, this is where it becomes the wild, wild west. It does. Uh, pharmacotherapy. Uh, I have my favorites and at least you can, of course, tell me some of yours. But what are the secondary medication options for status? And what are the, some potential side effects? Because that may actually kind of swing us one way versus the other. Yeah, there's a lot to kind of unpack here. Uh, you know, the secondary or the quote unquote urgent control therapy. You know, the first thing that I tell my students is, you know, these agents are given to all patients. Even if the benzo breaks the seizure, you still have to give that second or urgent control therapy medication. And when you look at the guidelines, they kind of list it as a stepwise approach of give your benzo, then give your second agent. I actually draw both up at the same time. I mean, ideally, you want to be giving these things simultaneously. And when you look at this technically phase of treatment, you have three main options. And what they do, these drugs, they mostly focus on mechanisms other than GABA receptors, right? We've already given a massive dose of benzos. Let's try something else. So the three main options are phenytoin or phosphenytoin valproic acid or Kepra. I'm not even going to try to say the generic name on your show. I already embarrassed myself on mine enough. Uh, But when you kind of break it down real quick, um, kind of the spark notes edition, phosphenatoin, we give 20 mg per kilo. And the max rate that you can give it at is 150 milligrams per minute, which is going to be about 10 minutes for an average dose. The downside is that in most hospitals, phosphenatoin comes from IV pharmacy in a piggyback, which can delay care. And again, we talked about how important quick treatment is. And the other thing that we sometimes forget is that phosphenatoin is a prodrug that has to be converted into phenytoin in the body. Um, so again, you're delaying its effects just by the fact of the way the drug is, you know, it comes with a whole host of side effects. Uh, remember, it's a class 1B antiarrhythmic. So you have the risk of arrhythmias, bradycardia, hypotension. So it's just kind of a dirty and weird drug to give. Um, the second option is valproic acid. Uh, we do 40 milligrams per kilo slightly better tolerated than phenytoin. But if you give it longer term, it causes a lot of the things that we as pharmacists know, like elevations in ammonia, thrombocytopenia, hepatotoxicity, has some very nasty drug interactions, including with phenytoin. So if your patient has to be on both, that's a problem. It has to come from IV pharmacy. And again, takes at least 10 minutes to give at my shop anyway. And your third option, and 
my personal favorite, obviously, is Kepra. Uh, we give 60 milligrams per kilo with a max of 4,500 milligrams. And the really cool thing about Kepra, and I talk about this in my show, is that we can give doses IV push over about three to five minutes uh, safely in adults and pediatric patients. So you don't have to wait from, uh, to get the bag from IV pharmacy. At my ED, we actually keep, we keep the 500 milligram per five mil vials in our Pixis machines. So like Jimmy was saying, I grab some Ativan, grab some Versed, grab my syringes, my needles, grab a bunch of Kepra, um, and I'm in the room within a few minutes. Um, so at my site, pharmacists either draw up the entire dose in a syringe if they're cowboys like me, and then I just tell the nurse to push it over three minutes. If it makes them nervous, you can put it in a 50 or a 250 ml bag of NS and just have the nurse give it wide open. So this will drastically reduce your time to drug administration and will actually cut costs because now you're getting rid of the nursing time, the pharmacy time, the cost of the IV bag and the solution if you're just giving it from a syringe. Um, and then again, Kepra is great because it has almost no side effects or drug interactions. And so it is, to me, the goat of status treatment. Absolutely. It takes a patient straight out of control, baby. That's what it, <laughs> that's what it do. I, I, I love it, man. I, I think right now we're at an interesting point, to be honest. I think Kepra right now, it just has too many good things. And, you know, I was fortunate that during, during my residency, we were one of the first shops to study giving it undiluted IV push. Oh, really? And it was pretty cool. And like one of the, one of my co-residents actually, again, she got published on one of the big studies uh, that's like got it to where most people who are sending me like their proposals for IV push, they have them on there. So I was like, shout out to my, my, my co-resident, Brittany, uh, oh, hey. getting that taken care of. She did a ton of work. So it's pretty cool to see that pan out. But it was, again, you know, this is back in like 17, 16, you know, we're just slamming four and a half grams, you know, continually mm -hmm. to do that. But I think that's something that's cool. That's an intervention that can save the patient from a morbidity and mortality standpoint. And that's another option that your pharmacist can be there because, hey, there's nothing wrong with getting it set up and you're doing it over 15 minutes and you got a couple bags going. But the, the, the downside to that, what we don't think about is that what happens if that patient kinks their arm? What happens if they get put in a different position and all the dose doesn't go in? Mm -hmm. The IV push formulation, it just ensures that the drug goes from brain to vein. Again, mm -hmm. is one, or, or really from, 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 from vein to brain. That's what you really want. To <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I like to reverse engineer that. that <laughs> we really want to make sure we, 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 we get that. And I think that if someone's pushing it, it ensures that medication gets in. Um, I know uh, there's a few surveys out there that said the people, you know, a decent amount of people are still doing Viproic. I have no beef with it. Um, mm -hmm. it's a dirty, it's a dirty drug. Viproic to me is the amio of anti-seizure medications. It's dirty on the back mm -hmm. end. Um, I just think of it that way. It's like, it's like that person, they're, they're a good time, you know, but they're kind of a little, you know, a little dirty on the back end. You don't want to keep them around. Okay. You don't want to, you don't want to, you don't want to bring Viproic acid to mom. Okay. Capra is the lady you, you, you bring it to your mom. Viproic is a little dirty on the back end. And I like to say that phosphorinic, you know, it, it has her own problems. So I like to keep those girls, you know, away from mom. And I'm going to put the ring on Capra for right now. Yeah, we don't I talk about Fosfeni in a family show. <laughs> I will say this. There's a wild card out there that I'm waiting for data. Vimpac is mm -hmm. something that I'm intrigued with. 
IV push, not as many drug interactions, uh, not as many adverse effects. Again, it's newer, costs a little bit too much to send people home on right now. I think that's changing, um, but it's something that I'm intrigued with. I want to see more studies, and it's something that what I start to see is my neuro shop. They're doing a lot of Kepra up front and then Vimpac the break, and then they, they'll put them on a different medication later on. Because a lot of these patients are going to come in on Kepra already. So sometimes they may switch up later on. But that's something I'm intrigued with. I want to see some more studies first before I jump on a bandwagon. But let's just let's fast forward five years from now. I can see there being a, a bigger push for something like Vimpac. Um, again, I'm not there yet. I'm not endorsing it yet. Um, mm-hmm. I'm a I'm a Kepra person. Again, I got the ring on Kepra's hand mm-hmm. right now. Uh, and we can just gotta kind of go from there. <laughs> Yeah, I'm excited to see that that Vimpad data. I've definitely seen more and more of it. And like you were saying, Jimmy, usually we give Kepra and then the neurologist will also ask for Vimpat. And I don't know if you've seen it, but I've seen high doses, like high yeah. make per kilo weight-based dosing of Vimpat. I was more used to the 200 to 400. I've seen 800. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is something that's really intriguing. And uh, definitely we have to keep our eyes out on, on this, but it's definitely something you might see um, at your shop. Yeah. Uh, again, it's something that it, it would definitely make your team nervous if you don't do this frequently. So just like keep that in mind. You may see some big doses. You may see something that's not necessarily uh, what you're used to. But I think working with your neuro colleagues and just making sure that we're all on the same page, we're just going to help out from that standpoint. But until we get more data, it's not the first thing I'm recommending without Nero. Um, and that's how I do a lot of my things. I say, hey, you know, this is cool, but I want to make sure Nero's on board before we do that and then figure out what dose that they want. Because, again, it, it, it can be anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't had any, any negative experiences with it now, so I'm pretty cool with it. So that's one thing I want to kind of focus on. Mm-hmm. All right. I don't want to get too nerdy here, but we got to talk about, again, there's a ton of data out there. Can you tell me, like, if, if, if do you have a favorite trial? I, I know it's a ton of stuff out there, but do you have a favorite trial to kind of help answer, you know, some of the questions of whether you should do one versus the other versus is Kepra better, worse than, or non-inferior? Do you have anything out there that you, that you want to, if you had one study to talk about, do you have one for these secondary uh, treatment agents? Man, I'm going to go pretty vanilla. You know, up until recently, we really didn't we really didn't know which of these agents worked the best until ESET was published. So I guess I gotta say ESET because it laid to rest a lot of our questions, and because I'm slightly partial to it because we were a study site for the trial. And so, just as a quick background for those who haven't heard of it, if you were living under a rock somewhere, or if you're brand new to pharmacy or medicine. This trial compared the three agents we just talked about, phenytoin, valproic acid, and Kepra as second-line agents, and found that all three worked similarly well or similarly bad, I guess, either way you look at it. Um, So each three of them had about a 45% seizure cessation rate. Um, So some people in the medical world took this as a negative trial, but to other people like myself, it gave me even more confidence to use Kepra on almost every patient because if the efficacy is the same, I'm always going to use the agent that I can get my hands on and administer the quickest. And as a bonus, it's also the safest. So I'm going to go with the very safe vanilla answer, ESET. Uh, if you have a better one, I'd love to hear it. 
Nah, you said just a quick one, man. Again, yeah. I feel like if, if if we're gonna have to talk about anything or people are feeling a certain way, I'm gonna bust out East and say, "Hey, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing now." Until you find me, you know, more data. I, it, it, it's not like we can say, "Oh, you know, it had ten patients." Like, no, this is has some, has some patients in there. Yeah. Again, it, it had a decent amount, and it, it was in fifty-seven EDs. Like, mm-hmm. that's that's phenomenal. And it was over like two years. So I feel mm-hmm. com- confident with the patient that, w- that were enrolled, the baseline characters look like my patients. And I just feel very comfortable when it comes to that trial and what it found. And real, and it's realistic. I think everyone wants to say it's a negative trial. But again, half of your patients, are, like, I think of it this way. Half of the patients are are getting broke with the uh, with, with the, the benzos. Half of the patients getting broke to secondary ages. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. we get into this this next space where, OK, now what? And I will say that, again, there are some docs out there that are going straight to this next step or Mm -hmm. are really kind of transitioning. And they're just going to say, hey, if my benzo didn't break it, I'm already given the Keppra. It may or may not change anything. I'm already given these these, these secondary agents. I'm going to go into what happens when when I'm in quote unquote refractory status. And that's where things really get intriguing, because the way I think about this is that you have these patients that come in. They're, where they're going to be located really change sometimes. I was in a shop where if they were just in general status, they would, they can, they can still go to make you and just have mm-hmm. a neuro consult. Or again, if these patients are really sick, this is when things kind of change. You got refractory status. Then they're going to the neuro ICU. Um, so for me, this is a really big changing point and we may have to get a lot more drug heavy. So again, so from your thought standpoint, what is the treatment for refractory status and what kind of monitoring is required? Because again, we're starting to get into some of the big guns now. We are. Yeah. So when we talk about refractory status, you know, it just means that you're a patient who's still in status despite getting first and second line agents. So you already got your benzo and one of those secondary AEDs, hopefully Kepra. <laughs> so to treat refractory status, you have a couple options. You can either repeat second line therapy. So give the drug you already gave, maybe give another, you know, second line uh, AED. Or like Jimmy was saying, you can just jump straight to what the most extreme step is, uh, intubation. So you can intubate the patient and start, again, a very high dose continuous infusion of either some type of benzo, usually like IV midazolam. And we're talking doses of up to two milligrams per kilo per hour. Uh, You know, another option is propofol. Again, most patients are on like 30, 40, 50 mics per kg per minute. Here, you can go up to 200 mics per kg per minute. Um, And you can also use ketamine up to 10 milligrams per kilo per hour. So again, very, very high doses, kind of hard to think about. Um, And when we treat refractory status, it's unfortunate because we don't have a lot of data or guidance on which agent works best here. So you can talk to a few different pharmacists, neurologists, et cetera. They might give you a few different answers. And it's usually up to the treating provider. A lot of times it takes into consideration what's already been given, how the patient is doing, et cetera. Um, but these patients are basically very heavily monitored in a neuro ICU setting. And the most important thing is that they have continuous EEG monitoring. So they'll have this monitoring for at least 24 to 48 hours after seizure cessation. And then in terms of the other monitoring these patients get, again, very, very pharmacy heavy. So remember, they're still going to be on that phenytoin, that valproic acid, that Keppra that you gave in the ED um, as second line agents. So as a pharmacist, you're going to be monitoring levels, 
aiming for higher than normal goals again. You're going to be looking at drug interactions and you're going to be hopefully having a very detailed note in the patient's chart about what was given, when it was given, what your levels are, and what worked and what didn't work for the patient. So very, very pharmacy-heavy disease state, especially once you get into refractory status. Absolutely. This is, again, this is where I, I like to say, okay, this is where we used to get fantasy. I had a, I had a professor, Dr. Romero uh, Sandoval, and we had a meeting one time, and he was like really into research. I remember him saying one day, he's like, okay, let's get crazy here. And I was like, <laughs> I'm not getting crazy here with any research, but you know, we, we can get crazy when it comes to that. But that's, this is my let's get crazy moment. Uh, when we're getting ready to intubate, there's a few things I'm thinking about. So like, first I'm like, Hey, what is my induction agent now? Okay. Am I going propofol? Am I going ketamine? Can that work? I remember uh, seeing an SECM a couple of years ago, there was a study that came out that looked at pre-hospital administration of ketamine for induction. And those patients did phenomenal. I think it was like close to like, I think like 75% of those patients had like birth suppression. Again, I'm oh, this wow. was one of those posters, things like that age. So I didn't kind of take it with too much, but in my head, I'm like, wait, okay, maybe that's something I want to look at. If I have a pressure that's decent or low on the lower end, if I'm high, I may want to go to propofol. Again, I don't have a ton of data like you mentioned, but it's mm -hmm. something that I'm actually intrigued with. I'm, I'm really intrigued with how all this stuff kind of pans out. So again, that's one part of what I'm looking at. My paralytic, I'm like, hey, this patient's been seizing for a while. I don't know if the patient has a high potassium. Do I have a point of care? Do I have all these things where I can make sure when we get ready to can do the continuous infusions, all that stuff is there. And it's a conversation I like to have before we get too worked up. Because again, when we get ready to intubate for status, that's when people start to like raise their eyebrows and say, okay, this is for real. This is a real deal. <laughs> so this is not yeah. something to play around with. And then I think the biggest thing I like to tell my nurses beforehand, like, hey, this is going to be really aggressive down here. And like, what do you mean? I said, I'm I'm thinking we're going to be on. I'm, I'm going to continue to increase the propofol until I get close to a a, a point where the patient's hypotensive. I right. mean, so I'm going from you know the starting rate. I'm titrating literally every time that the the, the order is allowing us to titrate. And my goal is I want to get the fifty. And, and sit there, but before EEG gets there, because again, I'm, we're not fortunate to always have patients that have EEG immediately, you know, but even before we intubate them. So I don't want my patient seizing mm -hmm. and we can't tell because most of these patients now are transitioning from the convulsive stage to non-convulsive status. Um, and I want to make sure I'm doing my part from a drug, a drug steward, a drug, a drug expert, quote unquote, to make sure I'm maximizing that. So I touch straight up pretty quickly. Again, as our protocols allow us to, with, with conversation between the ED doc, the ED nurse, and the neuro team, say, "Hey, this is my plan. How do you guys feel about that?" And usually, it's, it's okay. And it's okay. And back in my head, I say, "Okay, what's the next step in case this doesn't work?" And that's where we get into something that I, I'm gonna be honest. I don't. I should say this: we don't classify this in the ER a lot uh, due to timing things of that nature. But what the heck is this super refractory status epileptic and what is the prognosis for those patients of these? Oh man. So super refractory status, you're in trouble, you know, and it's not very clearly defined in any guidelines that I could find, but in a nutshell, it's just a continuation of status despite IV infusions of an anesthetic. <laughs> um, patients at this point are intubated they're receiving multiple continuous IV infusions, 
along with things like Vimpat, like Jimmy was talking about, maybe even some Topamax. And then there's some newer agents like uh, Briviact or Clobazam. So these patients are basically throwing the kitchen sink at them. They're super refractory just means I think, you know, more than I think, is it like 24 hours of continuous seizure activity, right? Without burst suppression or um, seizure cessation. Um, so very difficult to treat, very, very intensive uh, management. I've seen it a handful of times um, in our neurocritical care unit. Um, but yeah, very scary, very hard to treat. But the good news is if you look at the data, uh, patients can come out of it. You know, there is no set duration of a trial or a number of trials you can use on these patients before you deem it futile, meaning that they can be on these continuous infusions for many, many days even and still have good outcomes. So it's just something to keep in mind. Yeah. And that's the big thing. Most of our ER teams not going to see this, but some of you neuro guys and girls are out there seeing this and titrating up. And one of my residents, shout out to Nicole Frost. She just did her CE presentation on using ketamine in these patients. And I remember when I was in Augusta, this was something that came up for, for PNT committee. And we made like one wrong, like definition. It was like, oh, it's not a lot of data for um, refractory, but there's some for super refractory. And it's like, what do you mean? Oh, no, we can't do this. There's no data. We can't, <laughs> add, we can't add this. And I was like, listen, it's a very, very fine line between the super refractory. In fact, we look at time, but I think that from what's happening within the brain from a pathophysiology standpoint, we have a ton of upregulation of these, of these NMDA receptors. And then we're going to be basically just knocking out all, all your GABA receptors. So like you saturated those bad boys yesterday. <laughs> right. Those are, those are done. Like those <laughs> things have been like getting kicked off and firing for a while. So you have to start hitting the, you have to get very creative. And that's a let's get crazy here moment as well. And I've had patients when I, when I was in the unit, you know, on 200 pro, we're talking to, you know, 200 mics per kilo per minute of, of propofol. We have patients that are on a hundred to 150 milligrams an hour of midazolam. While also getting phenobarbital, that's that's going to be it. While also getting you know phosphenitoin and Keppra, and mm -hmm. and adding on uh, ketamine. Ketamine's in this weird spot. Well, we don't know the dose. I've, I've I've seen everything when it comes to adding ketamine for this, and I I, I think honestly, you can you can start off in the like the realistically anywhere from like the two two to ten range uh, milligram per kilogram per hour, and then there's some data out there on. On look at it from a mic per kilo per minute as well. So mm -hmm. make sure you kind of have those those units kind of situated because that's a key moment for a medication error because the data I've seen it both ways where they only list one unit. So make sure you have that and cross those over. Um, so that's one big thing I, I like to kind of talk about. Again, if I'm seeing these patients later on or if someone knows that I'm like a, I'm a ketamine kid and they call me from the unit, like, yo, Jimmy, I, I don't use this too, too, too often. You're the only clinical pharmacist in the house at this point. What should we do? And what would your clinical pharmacist want us to do from that standpoint? So that's just some quick things I want to throw out there when it comes to that. Uh, but definitely there's a lot of information here. Um, I, I think it's pretty, it, it, it's straightforward, but again, can we kind of summarize at least like some of the, the key takeaways? Uh, from our discussion and, and where can listeners go to get more information about you? Absolutely. I think the key takeaways is just memorizing the weight-based aggressive dosing and then the routes of administration for the three benzos and your three second line AEDs. So remember 
the very high doses used, give that initial dose up front. Don't chop it up into two or three doses. This will um, definitely help more of your patients survive and will actually lead to less rates of intubation than giving these smaller, wimpy doses that don't treat the seizure. And then you allow this receptor trafficking to kick in. And now you have a seizure that's even more difficult to control, right? Uh, I guess the second point is, Every patient, whether you break the seizure with benzos or not, should get one of the three second-line agents. And typically, based on the clinical evidence, ease of use, and lack of side effects, I think that agent should be Keppra. Uh, Jimmy is married to her. Great girl. Uh, you can give it IV push, undiluted, over 5 to 10 minutes. Um, and then, like Jimmy was saying, if your patient is still seizing or if you're intubating, you can consider doing RSI with things like midazolam, ketamine, propofol, and then starting a continuous infusion of one of those agents after that. Um, and again, being very, very aggressive with your dosing. Um, if you want more info in general, please check out my podcast or my blog at errxpodcast.com. If you just type in the search bar status, it should bring you to the numerous episodes I have on this topic. And also, I just encourage all of you to read the treatment guidelines published in, uh, I believe, 2016, by the American Epilepsy Society is where we get all of this information. None of this is new or earth shattering. Um, just make sure you're remembering the doses. Be aggressive. Uh, your patients will do better. Perfect. That really just kind of brings it in. If, if you don't have any final thoughts, I will, I will close us out. It's, it's always great to do an episode with you and just really hit some of these things because we, we're, you're going to see it. Most shops, you're going to see status. Uh, the thing is, are you defining it? Ask status correctly. Mm -hmm. You, you know, working with your team to make those things happen. So in, any final thoughts before I close out of this? There is. I just wanted to spend just a couple seconds kind of on my soapbox here. Um, and I was just kind of hearkening back to our dosing of benzos specifically is that these high doses of benzos tend to scare providers um, and they really shouldn't. You know, I call this uh, status under dosing us. Um, because we really do, in general, a horrible job of actually giving patients the correct dose of benzos. Uh, for example, there was one study published in JAMA back in 2019, looked at EMS protocols for adults with convulsive status, and they found that only two out of the 33 protocols called for guideline-recommended doses of midazolam, lorazepam, and diazepam. The rest were all underdosed. Um, we talked a little bit about ESET, right? The Established Status Epilepticus Treatment Trial. Um, only about 15, 1-5% of patients got an appropriate guideline expert recommended dose before moving on to what the study was looking at, which was second line urgent therapy. And this was in a huge randomized control trial, Jimmy. I mean, these, these people knew what they were doing and they still underdosed the agent and this is just because of the common misconception that high doses of benzos will lead to more hypotension and respiratory depression and intubation. And from a logical sense, that does make sense. But we have years of clinical experience and a good amount of data that the reverse is actually true. So in that study, I think you mentioned it earlier in the episode in 2001, the New England Journal of Medicine study looked at lorazepam, diazepam, and placebo in status. And this is probably the last time 
you can have a placebo controlled group for the treatment of status, but they were able to do it back in 2001. And they found that the rates of out of hospital complications, which was hypotension and then respiratory intervention, actually happened at twice the rate in the placebo group versus the group that got a benzo. So it was 20% versus 10%. And the authors were so taken aback by this that they like literally concluded that these respiratory problems are a consequence of us not treating status. So it's not the high doses of benzos you give. It's the undertreated status, because if that patient is seizing for more than five minutes and now you're having all that receptor trafficking, chances are you're going to have to intubate them anyway. So just give your high dose of benzo, trust that it'll work, trust that it's safe. Um, your patient has a much, much higher chance of breaking the seizure. Absolutely, man. And I, I think how I want to just say it is like, guys, this episode was called like straight out of control, managing status at the left because like a boss. Like, again, it's not managing it like you're scared. It's not managing it <laughs> yeah. like, you know, like, oh, you know, managing it like my two-year-old. You know, it's not managing it like that. It's managing like a boss. And again, a boss give real doses, okay? <laughs> and it doesn't matter if you're a first-year medical resident. It doesn't matter if if you're like, you're like one of my docs. I've been doing it for 20 years. But do it for 20 years like a boss, okay? And that's go. what it's about. Again, doses matter. Again, Drugs matter. And again, this is one of the things where I'm like, hey, fam, come on now. We're we not we not doing we're not doing point two five out of it. We're not. <laughs> like, that's not going to cut it. I'm like, bump those numbers up. Those rookie numbers. <laughs> so, fam, give, give give big doses of benzos. Mm -hmm. That's that's really what it comes down. If you give big doses of benzos, you can be a boss. And that's mm -hmm. what uh, I really want to help emphasize again, because that's one of the things that really help. I think we're starting to do a better job because back in the day, people were scared of Kepler big doses. And I think with, with ESAD and a bunch of other ones, like, yeah, we give them 60. We give Agreed, them 60 yeah. at the gate. Nero's yeah. giving 60 at the gate. Um, but we really have to do a good job of making sure we give big doses and give big doses of propofol too. Like if, if, if you get hypotensive, that's what we got norepinephrine for. Again, yep. we need to hit those receptors with everything we got and we got to do it like a boss. So that's, that's all I, I have. At least thanks for coming on, man. Again, it's always just so much love when you come on and a ton of knowledge. And again, for you guys, that's, that's, that's interested, go over and check out our show notes. We'll have a direct link. Again, if you just Google ERRX podcast, my man's going to come up. So that's nothing to worry about. So that's going to be, be getting there. And I'm closing out again, check out Packy prep. If you're taking any of the, certification exams we got you covered there you will pass we're going to pay you your money back and we're going to pay for your exam for next next time you have to take it so we're pretty we feel pretty confident with that come to empower rx confidence conference it's going to be really really fun for us as em pharmacists to finally have our own with the support of one of the largest emergency medicine physician organizations so this is a way for us to kind of get our foot at the table to get ourselves really involved and see how these things are done and Again, there's nowhere else that's been really trying to take care of EM pharmacists like my like my committee and the things that we've been doing. They've been doing a good job. So Megan Wretch, Lance Ray, John Packer, Chantrell Johnson, uh, Cal DeWitt, they've really been putting their just putting their back into making this the best conference that we possibly can. So I want to just leave you guys with that. That's going to that's gonna be a May 16th. So go check that out. All that stuff can be in the show notes. And we're going to close it out the same way we close out every episode. You don't have to be a pharmacist. You don't have to work in the ED, but everything you do, 
Make sure you farm so hard. Closes it. Ozzy scratches his head. Whatever she's looking for, it isn't in there. 